open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid. An honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. I'm Gary Wirtz. Hello, and thank you for listening to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. In this episode, Drs. Blake Williamson and Gary Wirtz sit down with Bausch & Lomb Chairman and CEO Brent Saunders to discuss his experiences with growing a business in ophthalmology. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. I'm, I'm here with my co-host extraordinaire, the man, the myth, the legend, Dr. Gary Wirtz. Gary, how you doing, buddy? Man, I'm great. I'm super excited. I've been looking forward to this interview for, I guess, as soon as we had the idea. And, um, you know, I'm excited about all of them, but particularly excited to welcome our guests. So why don't you give us a little inter introduction? I'll let you do, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So for folks who, who've been listening along, uh, this season is all about, um, it sort of it sort of has a business focus. So we could be talking about ILLs, we could be talking about, you know, uh, uh, drugs, we could talk about you know, all kinds of different things within ophthalmology, but this season's all about business and, and sort of how to grow your business and how to grow your brand. And so whenever uh, Gary kind of had the idea of, of this season's focus, literally the first person I thought of uh, was, was Brent Saunders. And, and I'm so happy to have him uh, with us. I, I started DMing him on Instagram. And after like the third DM, he's like, hey man, can you like tag my assistant in this? Because like, I don't know that I can book this based on like an Instagram DM. So my millennial uh, flair is kind of showing, Brent, I'm very sorry about that, but I'm so glad that we got to uh, wrangle you on here. Well, maybe the, the, the wasn't your millennial flair. It was my old flair was showing, but you know, I get so many DMs and by the time I saw yours, so it floated up or whatever, because I don't respond to all of them. I try to, but I don't always do. I, you know, I was like, how do I book this? I got to go to the calendar. I can't figure that out. I got to let, let my assistant sort this out. I love it. I love it. I love having you on here. Um, I heard about you way back in the day. My father was a huge crystallins implanter. Um, you were at BNL doing your, your first stint. I've seen you speak at, at ACOS and Aspen. Uh, on, on various panels, and, and uh, I echo Gary's sentiments, always kind of admired um, your professionalism. Uh, and Gary, this man, uh, Forbes magazine called him Wall Street's drug dealer. I'm not sure if you've seen him on the cover there. Uh, in my research for the episode, I saw that. I said, this is just, this is just bad. So uh, I thought that was cool. My mother didn't, by the way. My mother didn't like that title. So. <laughs> That's funny. Brett, I'd love to just, you know, while we've got you on here, I want to make the, the best use of our time. You, I'm sure, have a number of um, life experiences and pearls. We kind of see you in the public eye, but can you just give us a little bit of backstory, like the, the Brent behind what we see, you know, growing up, um, just what was your family like? What got you into going this route to becoming a CEO? How did this even start for you? Is this always the dream or just something that one thing led to another and here you are? No, 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 absolutely not. I was uh, the accidental CEO. Um, <laughs> so I, I come from a family of people who were in healthcare. Uh, grandfather was a pharmacist, other grandfather, podiatrist. 
my dad was a urologist, um, so mostly on the on the healthcare side and and no business experience whatsoever. Um, but you know, I grew up in in a rural part of Pennsylvania. I went to uh, the, I went through the Pennsylvania public high schools, Pennsylvania state school system for college and ultimately law school and business school at night. Um, and, you know, started working in healthcare. I was working at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. Um, and uh, after a few years there, I, I and a couple detours along the way, I, I wound up at uh, consulting at Pricewaterhouse Consultant. And uh, very young age, um, was, was quite good at a, unbeknownst to me. I was not a great student, um, but unbeknownst to, to myself, I found something I was pretty good at, which was consulting. And, uh, you know, started working with pharmaceutical companies um, as a consultant. And one of the companies was uh, was a company called Pharmacia. And there was a, a CEO there called Fred Hassan. And, and they wound up selling themselves to Pfizer. He then gets recruited to, to go do a turnaround at, at a company called Shearing Plow. And he asked me if I want to come with him and join the management team and help turn this company around. And in many ways, and with the benefit of hindsight, it looks like a really simple, easy decision. Of course, you would jump on that. But he literally offered me, I just had gotten married. I just had my first baby. I bought my first house. And financially, I was doing really, really well. He literally offered me about 25% of my salary to come do that, of what I was making at, at the job I was really good at. And after a lot of soul searching and a lot of, of, of consternation, I said, screw it. I want to really learn business. I've been advising. I'm on the other side. I'm young. I, I really want to work the other side. It will make, if worst case, it will make me a better consultant if it doesn't work out. And I went there and I just, you know, worked my ass off for this guy for, for eight plus years and rose all the way up to president of the company. Um, ultimately, Merck bought the company and, and that's where they got Katruder from, their biggest drug. Um, but, um, you know, my last job there was president of the global consumer business. So I ran products like Claritin, Coppertone, Dr. Scholl's, um, Miralax, uh, you know, you, you name it, anything in the drugstore. So it was, uh, it was a really great experience. I got to launch those all over the world, U.S., China, Europe, um, really, really great experience. That sounds like a fellowship in um, in high high level management. You know, we talk about fellowship is something. You, you say know. that, Gary, but I will tell you, I, I traveled three hundred days a year for you know eight and a half years. I didn't sleep. I you know had all sorts of health issues. I gained a lot of weight. I mean, when I. You know, I, I think, you know, it's a cliche to say, but I don't think like, you know, young kids know, what, you know, I would say, but, but what I went through, it's kind of like you guys going through residency, right? You know? right. Like, old school residencies, like what I went through was, was kind of like, like that. And, uh, and look, at the end of it, it trained me to, I thought to be a CEO. And, and then I got my first job as a CEO immediately thereafter as at Bausch and Lomb the first time. Um, and, and that's how the journey all began. But I, I still see that guy who hired me. He was my mentor. In fact, I had dinner with him and his wife. My wife and I had dinner with him Saturday night um, and just a Saturday. So he, he's still a mentor. And it, I think that, you know, there are a lot of lessons there, but one of them is the value of a great mentor. Sometimes you see people and, and Brent, I, I consider you a very young, successful CEO. And, and I'm sure that a lot of people don't know that that span, that eight year span. But there's oh, always not some- young enough to, to respond to a DM. 
<laughs> That's okay. That's okay. But my point is, it's like you see people who are very successful and it's very easy to be envious of the success or think, oh, they must have had just some lucky break here or there. And But I, it's almost always to a man or woman that there is some backstory of an experience that was deep and meaningful and no one saw. There wasn't a lot of li limelight at that point, I'm sure, when you're traveling 300 days a year. But that's when you you got, kind of go into the, sh the woodshed and do the work. And uh, you're right. Just like us in residency, Blake, you know, that's you kind of figure out who you are and what you want to do. So it's well, true. Look, I mean, there's always that professional envy, right? We we have it for for celebrities. We have it for sports stars. People have it for doctors. You know, they, they see the doctor go home in their nice car and think about the nice house they must have or whatever. What they don't realize is the, the immense amount of work and sacrifice that it took to get there. And it's not that, you know, no one's complaining, obviously, you know, we did it with knowledge. We, I would do it again. Um, so it's, you know, these are first class problems in many regards, but there's no shortcut for hard work to be good at anything. Exactly. You mentioned, you know, that, that sort of uh, vignette that you mentioned uh, highlighted the, the importance of a mentor, but also highlighted the importance of risk-taking. Um, and it seems like that, that, that was a big risk, 25% of your salary to go do that. And it worked out. Um, but maybe it doesn't always do that. Is there is there a time that you can think of where you made a big mistake within healthcare? Is, do you have something in your mind that you think that, gosh, I wish I could have taken that back if there was one thing you could do? Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, I, I've got more than one. I have, I have plenty of them. I, was, I have a saying, I actually just used it today at a at a team meeting here at, at, at Bausch and Lomb. I, I said, I'd rather fail for trying than for watching, right? So I'm, I'm, I am a huge bias for action, like, Let's try things. I I would beat myself up like you wouldn't believe for letting an opportunity pass me by. I will sit back and diagnose and try to figure out the errors I made from trying something. And so I much rather fail for trying than fail for missing, if that makes sense. So you're an action first kind of guy. I am, but you know, look, I think there's value in even even your 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 mistakes because you learn. Right. There's a consequence to everything. And some some of the best ways to learn things are by making those mistakes. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully you make, you know, enough good decisions that the mistakes all kind of mingle in and, and blend out to a net positive. But but absolutely. And I always say the thing about making a mistake is be open, honest and thoughtful about your mistakes. You always get in trouble when you hide your mistakes. Right. And and. So that's it. But, you know, to answer your question more directly, like, gosh, I thought I was like the smartest consumer healthcare marketer in the world. And you guys may have remembered um, Oprah had a segment on on TV where she 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 introduced the neti pot to America when they were suffering from colds. And so they take isotonic water, they put up one nostril and down the other nostril. Right. Well, I had a brand called Afrin. Right. With oxymetazoline. I'm like, you know, it'd be really cool. Like we, we looked into the data, isotonic salt water absolutely can help reduce, you know, uh, virus uh, infection other than by cleaning the nasal passages, makes you feel better symptomatic relief, everything. I'm like, why don't we create an isotonic salt water afrin? So my team was like, oh, we don't really like that idea. I'm like, no, 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 let's, let's do it. Let's do it. I, I bullied them into it. So we, we spent, I don't know, 10, $20 million building afrin, afrin C, I think we called it. We launched it, put it on TV, everything. I think we sold like two units. Like no one thought of Afrin as a natural isotonic 
but it really made me think about like the value, like a brand has an identity and, and you can mold that identity, but you can't just wholesale change it, right? Afrin is a heavy medicine and oxymetazoline brand, right? People know you get rebound, you shouldn't use it too often, right? Like there's issues there. Um, and so trying to create a natural, you know, uh, product in that brand just probably wasn't doable. But I, I learned a lot about, you know, in that moment about the, the value and, and personality of brands. I'd like to ask a question, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, I've, as I've sort of watched your career being, you know, a casual observer and also inside of ophthalmology um, with a lot of friends in industry as well, you know, can you just walk us through a little bit about, you know, the, the way you pulled a rabbit out of the hat at, at Allergan, you know, there's, you, you guys were going through some, some tough times. Um, it was sort of, you know, up in the air, what was going to happen with Allergan. And it just seemed like you were able to just kind of pull a rabbit out of the hat and just sort of uh, land that plane through a lot of choppy waters. And you can kind of take this in any direction that you want, but can you talk a little bit about, you know, I'm sure there were many sleepless nights and long board meetings and strategizing of how do you take Allergan and, and, and kind of navigate through all the, all the acquisition waters, but can you just walk us through maybe some lessons you learned or, um, how you're able to strategically take Allergan through that whole process? Uh, that's a really big question, but you know, if there are some pearls or some lessons that you learned in there that could be applicable, I would love to love to know. Yeah, so so the the facts are just slightly different. So what what happened was in 2013 when I sold Bausch and Lomb to Valiant, um, I I left and I went to become CEO of a company called Forest Labs in New York City. Forest Labs predominantly was a CNS company. Its two big drugs were Lexapro for depression and Namenda for Alzheimer's. Um, my my thought there was I could it was it was an underappreciated company that I could use that as a vehicle of building a bigger big pharma company, and I did. I started to do deals and 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 build Allergan uh, um, Forest into a, a a big company, and I bought a company and took its name called Activist, and we, we became Activist. Ironically, Valiant then decided to go and make a hostile offer for Allergan. Okay. And you got very vicious, very ugly, the, lots of lawsuits, lots of, you know, people throwing things at each other. Allergan was starting to deteriorate as a result of the strain of, of this. And I knew, you know, having been in eye care, I knew the Allergan eye care side. And then obviously, you know, I knew the, the aesthetic side with Botox and Juvederm and so on. So I remember I called the CEO of Allergan at the time and I said, look, I sold a company to these guys. I don't like how they, how they, you know, run things. I'm, I'm much more into R&D and, you know, people and, and all the other things. Um, you know, if you feel like I know you're resisting them, but if you feel like you're going to lose and you need a helping hand, call me. I, I, I will help you guys. I'll be what you call white knight in business terms. He's like, no, 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 we're going to win. No, 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 no issue needed. And I remember I was sitting in my office at Activists and I had CNBC on the side TV and I saw a breaking news thing. And it was that Allergan had lost the court case on how um, Valiant could vote their shares and so on and so forth with Bill Ackman. I knew then he needed a white knight. I swear to you, not 10 minutes later, my phone rang and it was him. And really? he said, you think he can help us? I said, absolutely. And and the key to getting this done, because doing a white night deal is incredibly complex, was moving quickly. So 
you know, within a course of roughly two weeks, we wound up signing up a deal. I agreed to change the name of the company again to Allergan because that was important to them. And frankly, Allergan was a better name than Activist. Um, and I, I essentially acquired Allergan and then renamed the, the, the combined company Allergan. And we never, I mean, look, we had, we had issues for sure. We had things in the pipeline that didn't work. We had, you know, we had a, a intellectual property issue with Restasis that, you know, ultimately just ha actually happened, even though people thought it was going to happen five years ago. Um, and, 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 you know, it was a good run when we wound up, you know, selling it for an enterprise value to AbbVie in 2020, summer of 2020 for $83 billion. So it worked out pretty well. Yeah. And that's my question. Like I was telling Gary before the calls of repairing, I was like, you know, one of the sad things about my life is I'm only friends with one billionaire. I only got one friend who I could call up at, we text and, and he's a billionaire. Um, you probably know lots of billionaires. Is there, is there any, and, and I just love watching, you know, the orbit around him and the things that go on for him to get from point A to point B. Is there any qualities of billionaires that you picked up on that you notice? Are, are there similarities that they all kind of sort of have? I'm sure they're wildly different in some parts, but perhaps the same in others. Yeah, I would say, and and you know, listeners may may find this, you know, an odd thing to say about the ones that I know, um, is that on a day to day basis, you wouldn't know they were billionaires. Now, if you went to their weekend home or got on their plane or whatever, maybe that would change. But on like a nine to five Monday through Friday kind of exercise, and nine to five is probably too too simple a way to say it. They don't they don't look like billionaires. They they work like we do. They they hustle. They never give up. They're always on. They're always thinking, and most of them aren't aren't you know satisfied to not be just keeping the competitive sport going. Right. Um, maybe as they get older, that will change. But but you know they're 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 never complacent. They're never satisfied. And they've all they've all achieved success too. And that's one of the big themes that we've had this season is how do you define success? I mean, I wonder if that's changed from you from the days where you were. At in Pittsburgh, you know, work, you know, moving furniture you know, as a laborer, you know, to, to, to where you are now. I mean, success has probably changed what that means, that def definition. You know, I, I was just, I actually was just doing a mentoring call right before I, I joined the podcast with a 27-year-old founder of a small company. And he was saying, you know, he was talking about his life objectives, like you would understand that at 27, right? You think you do though, right? When you're, when you're 27. And I said to him, you know, I, I had this one experience when I when I was named president of Global Consumer at Sharing Sher Plow. I remember exactly where I was when the CEO called me to tell me he was gonna he was gonna you know pick me to be that to have that job. I was in a hotel because I had been traveling so much, but I remember saying I was by myself. I remember saying, you know, I'm gonna go down to the bar. Like I am elated. I felt like my heart was like I'm like I finally made it. Like holy shit, this is really happening to me. I all my hard work is paying off. And I got to tell you, 15 minutes later, it all went away. And all I wanted to do was work again. And I realized very quickly to myself that that wasn't my goal. My goal wasn't to achieve a status or a amount of money in the bank account. My goal was to continue to just be in a competitive sport and be successful. Kind of like, I think, I don't know him. I think that's why Tom Brady doesn't retire, right? Like it's not, or didn't retire, right? It, it's not that he wanted to, you know, he didn't win enough Super Bowls or he didn't have enough accolades or he didn't have enough success or enough money. It was, he didn't want to stop competing, right? At what he did well. 
right? He wanted to stay in that, that game and continue to do what he did well and was scared that when he stopped doing that, he wouldn't know what else to do. And that's kind of how, that's what I learned about myself, which is why I haven't stopped, right? No matter what, I, I, I don't stop because I don't, enjoy, look, of course, I, I, everybody likes to make money and having a, you know, whatever number in your bank account you want to have is, is security for you and your family and your dreams. But I don't want to minimize that because that's always an element of something. But I used to think back, back when I was younger, if I just had so much on my bank account, I'm just going to stop working. I'm going to go on vacation and road trips and this and that. That's not the goal. That's not my goal, at least. And I don't think it's most people's goal. It, you want to make a difference. You want to, you want to, you know, be relevant. You want to be, uh, for me, I love team sport. Like I, I'm a team sport. I think business is a team sport, right? I, being part of this, being back at Bachelor, being part of the team, like, you know, we're a bit of a David and Goliath kind of, kind of story in the, in the eye care, you know, industry. I love that. That, what a great setup. What, what It motivates me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Like that I love. So Blake and I were talking about this also. Is there something special about eye care for you that makes you, because I'm, I'm, I assume that Brent, with your resume, um, you have probably had offers in a lot of different areas um, outside of ophthalmology, but it seems like ophthalmology, you keep coming back and in, in, in making a difference in, in different companies in different ways. Is there something about ophthalmology that particularly drives you to kind of keep coming back to it? And we're glad you are. I'm just curious. Yeah. Well, you know, I actually, I thought about that once. One, I'll give you two quick anecdotes. One, one when, when I was leaving Sharon Plow and before joining Bausch and Lomb, first time, I was, I was approached by a headhunter representing a, a, a nationwide retailer we would all know, looking for a CEO. And I interviewed with the board and they offered me the job. And it was more than what PL was going to pay me as well. Not significantly, but a good step up, right? It was a noticeable difference. And I remember going to sleep that night thinking to myself, I'm probably going to take that retail job just to try something different, get out of healthcare. And then I was thinking to myself, do I just want to sell things? Like, do I want to sell pencils and paper clips and other things? Or do I want to make something that helps people live their lives better? You know, the beauty of, say what you want about pharmaceutical companies or whatever, I get the, the this cynical view of it all but but the reality is most people at Bausch & Lomb most people at any other pharmaceutical company or healthcare products company come to work to make something that's going to improve somebody's lives in some small way right whether it's through your hands as a, as a doctor and we give you the, a tool that that helps you do it better or not but it sounds a little corny but but it's really rewarding to be a part of something like that and so even like, I remember we, we launched a drug for, for um, atypical antipsychotic called Vralar. It's a pretty big drug now at, at Allergan. And I worked years and years and we took a lot of risks on that. And I remember when, when we launched it a few months thereafter, I'd start to get patient, letters from patients that, that, you know, claim they were snapped out of whatever fog they were in, this, that, and the other, or it saved their lives or whatever. You can't imagine. I mean, you guys as doctors get, get it firsthand all the time, but we as business people, we're one removed sometimes. You know that stays with you when when it happens. You know I think I care specifically. It, honestly, it's my first love. I was the first CEO job I had, and the community, the eye care community, the ophthalmology, even the optometry, the the people in the retail, the other industry players. What a great group of people! I mean, you don't if you're not in ophthalmology. I've been in a lot of different parts of healthcare. If you're not in ophthalmology, you don't realize how lucky we are to have such a great eye health community. It, it really is a, a robust 
great ecosystem. And yes, there's some competition that and whatever, but everybody's trying to 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 move the ball in the right way to create innovation to help patients. And it's it's just awesome. And I have to ask you on that on that end, how's it like being back uh, at at Bausch? I mean, what's going on? I mean, I know that the new ICA Aptheria lens has been fantastic. I know all of us surgeons, refractive cataract surgeons like Gary and I are super pumped with it. I put in like six of them today. I love it. Uh, uh, my new favorite, you know, my new best friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been amazing. It's been we've been we've been you know, Bausch has needed a, a something in the in the in the uh, advanced technology IOL space, and and now they have it. My local reps are like it's great. People are blowing up my phone trying to get access to this thing. And yeah, we, we need it's it, so we fun. Manufacture. I mean, I actually watch the numbers. You're right, and and it, it's doing great. And I, I I think it is a very good lens. But look, I think what what's great about being back at at, at Bausch is is Hey, this is a great storied company, 170 years old, the most you know comprehensive integrated eye care company in in the industry. Although we're the smallest of the bigs, right, uh, of the big ones, um, the way to to fix to to you know not fix Bausch, but the way to to keep Bausch relevant is exactly what you just said, Blake. It's innovation, and that's what's so much fun about this job. Like you get a great product, and this community, you, you know, the community of of ophthalmologists, you know, you guys jump on it because you want to, you want to get a better outcome for your patients. And that's just, it's so, so simple. It's so hard to do, but so simple to, to strategize around, right? Like get the best products, get the best innovations, work with your customers, figure out what they want for their patients, and then, you know, get it out the door and make it well, right? And that's the strategy. And, and that's what I want to do with Bausch & over the next, you know, few years is really get us to be we won't be the biggest, but I really want to be the best at at bringing new innovation out and really, really turbocharge the, that side of this company. Yeah, that's amazing, Brent. Um, any final thoughts, uh, Blake, for you or for Brent? Yeah, maybe just a final piece of advice, Brent, if you don't mind. A lot of our listeners, this is the most streamed you know, podcast in ophthalmology. A lot of young surgeons, uh, medical students are interested in ophthalmology, residents. Any advice for, for, for those young ones that are wanting to come out and make a difference? Anything that you've seen in, in KOLs over the years, qualities and traits that, that they might want to consider as, as they, as they get started in their career. My advice, I think is pretty simple and may, hopefully it means something to somebody, but um, find what you're good at and then just be really passionate about doing it. And by the way, if you're good at it, you're generally going to be passionate about it, but don't try to be everything to everybody, right? You know, you're, if you're great at cataract surgery, be the best cataract surgeon. If you're, you want to do retina, be the best retina. If you want to do, you know, whatever it is, glaucoma, be the best at that. And I find that the, you know, the people who find, who figure that out earlier rather than later, because everybody figures out eventually, but the earlier you figure that out, the, the odds of your success being greater, not, there's no slam dunk, but, but man, it's so much easier to work hard when you're passionate and good at something. I love it. I love it. That is a wonderful parting thought. I think we will leave it there. Uh, Brent, we are looking forward to a lot of uh, you know continued success at Bausch & Lomb, and we're glad that you're back uh, leading one of the great companies in ophthalmology and giving us great products to help our patients. So thank you for bringing- Thank your- you guys for having me. It was a lot of fun, and I hope to see you in person soon. Absolutely. Thanks. Once again, thank you for listening to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. And thank you to Drs. Blake Williamson and Gary Wirtz and our guest, Brent Saunders. Stay tuned for the next episode to delve further into how to grow a business in ophthalmology.